Howdy friends, I'm your host, J.R. Honeycutt, and of course this is episode 6 of J.R. Plays. I had a few chances to play games over the course of the last week and a few days. Of course, at the end of episode 5, I mentioned that I was heading off to Nerd Night, and I did go, and we had a great time playing games and raising money and awareness for The Warm Place, an organization here in Fort Worth, Texas, that provides support for kids who've lost loved ones. Played a lot of party games at Nerd Night, and uh, I'll talk about that here in just a minute. I also played games on Thursday night at Collected Comics and Games by TCU off Blue Bonnet Circle, which is where we play games on Thursdays normally when I'm in town, and uh, had a chance to play a bunch of Mechs vs. Minions, so get excited about more talk about that. And finally had a day where Eric Yorkston, one of my buddies, came over and did some lunchtime gaming with me, and in about an hour and a half we managed to play a whole bunch of different games together, which was really fun. So without further ado, the games that I played this week are Get Bit, Coup, Strike, Pit, Set, Star Realms, Mexica, Via Nebula, Tides of Madness, Ten Down, Onitama, Mechs vs. Minions, The Networks, Gobblestones, and Pandemic of the Cure. Now that's a lot of games, and I'll probably go pretty quickly through some of the small ones, but I am going to talk about each one of them. I do talk about every game I play, every week. Alright, games that were new to me, there are only three this week. Mexica, The Networks, and Gobblestones. And each one of these is a game that I've been trying to play for a while, even Gobblestones, which I've seen on the shelf and collected for almost a year now, and it's really pretty looking, and I've kind of wanted to pick it up and just play it, so I'll start with that one. Uh, Gobblestones is a Quirkle-esque game of tile laying, where you're placing colored tiles, like red, yellow, green, blue, purple, on top of a board that has spaces that are the matching colors, and the object is to cover up numbers, numbers 2 through 6, and score points in doing so. It's a little bit like Quirkle in that you have a hand of tiles, and you play them and score points. Uh, it's not like Quirkle in that you play on a board, which means that you have a restricted space. It's like a 3x3 three three grid of tiles that themselves have maybe a 9x9 nine nine grid of squares on them. And you play rounds until somebody runs out of tiles, which is exactly like Quirkle. And if you've played Quirkle, it is a spill DRS winning game, and it's fantastic. Uh, in Gobblestones, you're playing to get the highest score. And on your turn, you'll play some number of tiles between 0 and 5. And then after you've played tiles, you'll draw 5 minus the number of tiles you played. And this is actually a pretty cool little quirk that Quirkle doesn't have, I guess pun intended or whatever, uh, in that if you play 0 tiles, you then draw 5, and you might end up with a hand size that is like 10 tiles after having done so. Or if you play 5 tiles and score a whole bunch of points, you'll draw no tiles at the end of your turn, which is also you know, kind of a problem because you want to score points every turn. Uh, Eric beat me and Randy. Randy and I tied, and we were like 7 points behind Eric at the end of it. But it was neat to see. It seems that there's like a middle point where you definitely want to play like three tiles in your turn and then draw two more, or play two tiles and score like nine or ten points, which is kind of like a good average when you're scoring between two and six. Then just keep drawing two or three tiles at a time for as long as you can. It was a neat game. I'm glad that I played it. I actually had more fun than I expected to have with it, given how simple it is and how simple the rules were. And it is a game that I would definitely play again. Uh, if you don't already own Quirkle, I could see putting Gobblestones in your collection. I don't think there's necessarily a reason to own both. I think Quirkle is probably the game that would be more fun over the long run. First off, it plays to the space that you have, so you can play it on whatever table space you have. Also, I think the Quirkle symbols are a little more interesting than just seeing colors and stuff. And there's probably some colorblind problems. And Gobblestones, they make the tiles in such a way that you just cannot tell them apart if you were colorblind, I think. I haven't looked at the colors on the spectrum, but my guess is that it wouldn't work. Still, Gobblestones, cool game, and I'm glad that I played it. Uh, the next new game to me this week was Mexica. Had a chance to play a two-player game with Amy, and when you play a two-player game in Mexica, you use a robot player, or at least you set their temples up, and it's pretty cool. Yellow, 
who was the publisher for this game, which was designed by Spill the Aris winning designers Michael Kessling and Wolfgang Kramer, who are responsible for Tikal and four other Spill the Aris award winning games, as well as one of my favorite games, Abloxen. Uh, these guys, Yellow, the publishers, actually added the two-player variant to the rulebook and credited the designer of that two-player variant in the rulebook. And as a game designer, it's very nice to see somebody credited for their work uh, in such a public way. So it was really nice. Uh, we played the two-player variant, which means that we set temples out in the middle of the board to start, and then we started playing. And I want to give a little context from Mexico and what you're doing in this game, because I think it's actually a really cool theme. And I'm glad that I read the rulebook and read about the theme, which isn't something that I necessarily always do when I'm talking about playing an abstract. Uh, in Mexica, you and the other players are founding the ancient city of Tenochtitlan, the Aztec capital. The Aztecs also were known as Mexica, which is where the name Mexico comes from, uh, and Tenochtitlan is now Mexico City. Uh, the Aztecs had a prophecy or a belief, and the fulfillment of that belief led them to found the city of Tenochtitlan where they did on this island. This game, Mexica, is about founding that city. So I went to the World Digital Library to learn more about this prophecy, which it alludes to in the book and describes a little bit, but I wanted to know more about it. So, the eagle, the snake, and the cactus in the founding of Tenochtitlan uh, comes from the Tovar Codex, which is attributed to a 16th century Mexican Jesuit Juan de Tovar, contains detailed information about rites and ceremonies of the Aztecs in 51 full-page paintings and watercolor. And if that sounds nerdy to you, well, you're listening to a podcast about the games that one person plays every week, so I'm going to assume that you're going to stick with me for this little ride. This is super cool. So, the prophecy was that a eagle would perch in a cactus, holding a snake, and devour that snake. And there's a painting of what this prophecy would be, and you can see it at the World Digital Library. Just type in eagle, snake, and the cactus, and you can see it. There are, in this painting, footsteps of the Mexicans shown approaching the base of the cactus, and two rulers sitting on basketwork thrones, and it's super, super cool. And the Aztecs believed that when they saw this symbol, which was uh, the eagle sitting on top of the prickly pear, a flowering nopal is what it's called, uh, holding a snake and devouring it. But this is where they would found their city, Tenochtitlan, and they did so uh, on this island. So Mexica is all about building canals and then building buildings and temples to please the emperor who is sitting, you know, uh, in their four seats in the emperor's temple. And it scores as many points as possible in doing so. And in the game, you were simply moving around your little person who takes actions for you, placing canals, so you're slicing the island up into different sized spaces, and one of the primary ways that you score points is by making specific sized regions by using canals and the lakes, the island's borders, which is the lake itself, uh, to make areas that are certain sizes that are depicted uh, quasi-randomly by the emperor, and in doing so, to score points. So you're going back and forth and placing these temples and dividing up these areas, and then there's two rounds of scoring, and in each round of scoring, for each section that is finished, uh, you get points based on who has the most temple levels there. And at the beginning of the game, you're given nine temples, level fours, level threes, level twos, and level ones. And at least for the yellow version, they are beautiful temple components that are actually like nice and like the component quality for this game is outstanding and you should check it out. It's the reason I bought the game. I saw a picture of it and I said, I don't know what that is or how to play it, but I'm buying it because it looks beautiful and I'm glad that I did. From a gameplay standpoint, at least in the two-player game, a lot of this game is about managing your actions. You get six actions per turn, and the different things you can take take different action points, which is kind of what Kramer and Kessling did in Tikal, and I think it's kind of like their hallmark. But you allocate your action points to move around and build the things you need to do, then claim territories. But claiming areas and putting temples down inside them also takes action points. So you have to be careful not to set up a perfect area that's exactly the right size that you want for a temple, and then end your turn, because somebody else can just pop over to it, uh, riding a boat through the canals from bridge to bridge, as you do, and then take the very thing that you spent all your actions working so hard on. And I lost to Amy by, I think, like two points 
And I did so because she was able to jump in and snipe some of the places that I built up, particularly like the big 13 space area, which is something Amy did and I definitely wanted to do and she stole it from me, which is great for her. And she won because of it. And it was really cool to see that happen. I definitely want to play it again with three or four players um, just because it felt like two players was probably the least dynamic way to play because the robot that you set up as the third player puts a bunch of temples down at the beginning of the game, which means like the available areas to build things are a little smaller when the game starts, and then doesn't do anything else for the rest of the game. So I still logged a score for that player just because I'm kind of a crazy and I wanted to make sure I had that score. And they do actually score points, which is kind of cool. So I guess you could technically lose to that player, but it would be really difficult to do. Uh, but with a third player or a fourth player also dynamically building the island as you play it, I think it'd be more interesting. That was Mexica. I cannot wait to play again. Very exciting. It wasn't as good as I thought it would be based on the component quality. Like, I think the component quality is rated higher than the gameplay. But the gameplay is very good. And it's a wonderful excuse to sit there with a bunch of pieces at a table for an hour and think about how cool they look. And also, you got to learn about the ancient Aztec prophecy about the eagle, the snake, and the cactus, which is also super cool, and any chance to learn about other cultures is amazing. So, Mexica, check it out, play it, let me know if you do. The last new game I played this week was The Networks by my friend Gil Hova, who runs Formal Ferret Games. And in The Networks, players are producers at TV stations signing TV shows and assigning advertisements and movie stars or TV stars to these shows, scoring points for having the best combinations or most appropriate combinations of these things based on various stats and interactions of their symbols and such, and then doing so over the course of five years of TV. I did not like the networks, and I'm going to talk about why, but I want to make sure that I profile this game in such a way that I'm fair to it. Uh, the art's very pretty, the humor is top-notch, every TV show is a little play on words or a pun, or it is a rephrasing of a popular TV show you may have seen before. And I think this is because Gil threw out ideas for TV shows to his backers during the Kickstarter campaign. So there's a lot of really cool ideas. And it's kind of what you would expect from a Kickstarter campaign. Like, the jokes are pretty funny, and some of them are better than others, and the art sort of matches up to it, and it looks really good. The game, however, is completely abstract. In the networks, you start with three time slots, 8 p.m., 9 p.m., 10 p.m., and a random show in each one that doesn't really score you any points. And your turns, which you take, you know, interchangeably until all players have passed with variable turn order and such. Uh, and on those turns, you just either grab new TV shows or grab stars that will eventually be on those TV shows or grab advertisements. But each of those things combine in such a way to either earn you money, which lets you buy more things in the future, or to score you points, which happens at the end of each round. I could teach you how to play this game without ever referencing the theme, you could play it and win, and have fun winning, I think, without ever thinking about the theme whatsoever. And that bothers me. I never felt like I was an ad executive or a network executive while I was playing the networks. And as such, I never really became immersed in the process. It was just like a numbers grinding math machine where I was trying to figure out how do I get the most points and how do I combine these symbols in such a way that I can get more points than the people around me. And additionally, it isn't necessarily interactive beyond some special actions cards called networks cards that you can buy that kind of let you do crazy things. And of course, the idea that you're all buying from a common market, so especially in a five-player game, it's going to be four people's turn until it's your turn again, so they might take what you want. And you can kind of anticipate what they're going to do by looking around and seeing what they have and what they don't have. Some of the cards that you buy from the middle have certain requirements for what you actually can do with them. 
So if you don't already have two TV stars, then I can tell you're probably not going to buy this thing, and I'm safe to push my luck and go get to it. All those mechanisms are pretty cool, and I think that system was interesting. And I think this game would be playable for me again if I played it with like three players, but I just never felt immersed in what I was doing. I never felt like the mechanistic actions that I was taking were in any way connected to the theme. I was picking up cards, slotting them on a board, and then scoring points based on other cards that interacted with them. And that was it, over and over again until the game ended. And that's a shame. I adore Gil. Um, he's one of the great designers out there, and he's a super thoughtful and very impressive designer who I have playtested for multiple times and whose other games, like Battle Merchants, I really enjoy. Uh, but this one didn't do it for me. That said, if you are the kind of person who wants to play a Euro game, and you want to laugh about the context and content of that Euro game while you play it, but you don't want to have to think too deeply about thematic interactions, then I think this game is absolutely for you. If you want to sit around and play a Euro game that's going to make you laugh, this game is absolutely for you. For whatever reason, it didn't click for me, but I still think it's a good game, and I was really impressed with the mechanisms and how smooth the game was to play. It was very easy to learn, despite being fairly complex and what's happening. All the players at the table seemed to grok it right away, and we played really smoothly. The game time took a little while, because it's like a Thursday night thing at our comic store, so there's interruptions and stuff going on. But it wasn't for me. So that's the networks. And I hope that you try it and give it a chance. Uh, I will play it again with three players, I think, just to see if speeding it up a little bit makes it a little more fun for me. And it doesn't help. I was playing with Eric, and Eric is traditionally not the best. If he doesn't enjoy a game, he'll complain about it, and I do it too, so I'm also guilty of that totally possible that we riffed off each other a little bit and made it worse than it needed to be. That happens sometimes, but it wasn't for me. Alright, I've got a plethora of quote-unquote party games that I played. Uh, Pit, Coup, Strike, Abluxen, and Set, each of which I played at Nerd Night and had a great time playing. Uh, I'll talk about each one just for a minute and encourage you to play all five of them. I think all five of them are great games that should be played. Uh, the first is Pit, designed in like 1903. This game has been around for a really long time and has been at family game nights for a really long time. And for good reason. Pit is super fun. It's an open outcry trading game where each of you starts with a hand of random commodities and then you're trading them back and forth in sets of one, two, three, or four for other sets of one, two, three, or four. Uh, and your set has to all be the same kind of good of a number of goods that is equal to the number of players. And the first player to get a whole hand of one good rings a bell in the middle of the table and wins a game. Uh, if that sounds ridiculous and simple, it is ridiculous and simple, and it is super fun. Basically what happens is somebody rings a bell to start the game, and then everyone just starts screaming at each other until somebody rings a bell, and then everyone screams louder because they were just about to win. Then everyone says, ah, who has my coffee, or who has my wheat, or who has my sorghum? I don't think sorghum's one of the things, but you get what I'm saying. It's an open outcry trading game, and it is great. I really, really enjoy Pit. Uh, in a previous life, I worked as a broker at TD Ameritrade, and in doing so, had a chance to visit the pits at the Chicago Board of Options Exchange uh, and the Chicago Board of Trade in Chicago. And this is where they did the kind of open outcry pit trading, which has since been replaced by electronic trading, uh, that this game is built on. In Chicago's history, and Chicago's a very special city to me, I lived there for a little while, and it's where I fell in love with hobby games. Part of Chicago's history is this image of people just standing on the shore yelling at each other, trading things that were coming in on boats 100, 120 years ago, and this is where these pits came from. And it's such a cool thing to play this game and to experience, in a very small package, what it must have been like to stand there and just scream at each other, trading for commodities and goods, uh, just trying to make money until the end of the day. Pit is wonderful. If you haven't played it, you should. It's a classic. I think it's a game that everyone should own. 
It plays well at any party. You can teach the game's rules in 15 seconds. It is impossibly easy to understand and very, very accessible and very, very fun. Unless you're the kind of person who doesn't want to yell at your friends and then ring a bell a bunch. If that sounds bad, don't buy Pit. But if that sounds awesome, do buy Pit. Uh, next is Coup, which is a two to six player game of social deduction published by Indie Boards and Cards. And of course, it's been published in other versions before. I really enjoy Coup. I never ever win the game because people pick on me like crazy, and I'm fine with that. Uh, in Coup, each of you starts the game with two cards, and those cards might be one or two of the five personalities in the game. And those five personalities let you take certain actions. But on your turn, you can take any action you want to. It doesn't matter if you have that card in your hand or not. But if you don't have that card in your hand, and another player calls you out and says that you don't have that card in your hand, then you lose one of your cards. And when you lose both of your cards, you are dead. And when all the players are dead except for one, that player wins the game. Uh, Coup is great and very easy to teach. It always comes to me at Nerd Night because it's a game that I can pick up and play with people who are new to Nerd Night and haven't played a ton of games. And I've noticed that people people are often hesitant to feel comfortable lying in front of other people playing these kinds of social deduction games. And I'm not sure exactly why that is. It might be a little bit of a social barrier, or it might be that they're uncomfortable with the group and don't necessarily know how to interact. Coup is a great breaking in game for a party because people can lie a little bit and get called on their bluffs. And I think that specific social interaction within the Magic Circle makes people feel more comfortable. And I really love that. So Coup is a great game. Again, it's been around for a while. You should play it if you haven't. Another game we played was Strike, which I love to death. In Strike, you throw dice into a box. And then if you get pairs of dice or more than one dice that match up, you pick them back up and your turn is over. And you go until only one person has dice left. That's it. That is Strike. Some people say that it's not a game. I disagree. It's going to go on my top 10 games that I would keep in my collection forever list this year. I love Strike. I don't quite know why I love it, except that it creates all these wonderful moments where you're like, I rolled a die. Oh no, that happened. Amazing. And you roll so many dice that all these things, it won't happen in a small sample size, but can happen in large sample sizes. Like, oh, I rolled four sixes, and if I hadn't, I'd be dead right now, etc. Uh, those things are incredible. Strike is awesome, and I'll talk about it at length someday. But if you haven't played Strike, you totally should. It is incredible. Or you'll hate it. It seems like it's either one of those two things. I don't know anybody who feels in the middle about Strike. I also had a chance to introduce my new friends, the people who came from the warm place to Abluxen, which is again by the same designers who did Nahika and Tikal, Michael Kessling and Wolfgang Kringer. I've talked about Abluxen before. It's a game where you're trying to just get rid of all the cards in your hand and score as many points as possible. It is a very clever card game that involves almost zero rules whatsoever. On your turn, play as many cards as you want to, and then when you're done, it's the next person's turn. And sometimes you will quote-unquote ablux people, which is like a made-up word in German that I don't know what it means, but you might get to steal their cards. Abluxen is wonderful. I play it all the time. Uh, you should play that one too. I had a chance to teach the same friends the game Set, which is by Marsha Falco, the publisher of Set Enterprises, and who also does games like Quiddler. Uh, I love Set to death, and in fact have played Set competitively a few times at Gen Con and other conventions, and I really enjoy it. In Set, players are racing as they're all staring at a mutual board full of cards, which is usually 12 cards and might go as high as 15. Um, and they're trying to find sets of cards, a set of three cards, that matches certain patterns that they see on the table. And as soon as they see one, they say set, they grab the three cards that make that pattern, put them in their score pile, and the game is over when there are either no more cards left or when the cards that are left can't form any more sets. At which point, player with the most sets wins. Uh, it's probably not actually a game unless you're playing it at a high level because, like any other matching game, you're just racing to find something before other people do. There's no choice there, and I think without the choice, you're probably not actually playing a game so much as you're just doing like a mental dexterity thing. 
But if you're playing set well and you know what you're doing, you might see more than one set and start making choices about which one you take based on what other things you want to see come up later. There are some distributive effects that change what comes out later based on what you have now, etc. Uh, but it's still very fun. So it's a little bit of a stretch to call it a game, and feel free to argue with me if you want to. I'm happy to talk about it anywhere. Uh, but I love it, and it's really, really fun. And again, it's something nice to sit down and show people who might be... Math-brained is probably the wrong way to say this. Who are like pattern-matching-brained, who want to sit down and think about, like, huh, what third card would make those two cards a set? And can I find that before somebody else? It's a lot of fun. It's a classic. It's been around for, gosh, almost 30 years now, since 1988. And uh, I learned it when I was in Chicago, and I love it. I love playing it. And I do the set game challenge at setgame.com just about every night, where you have like a minute to find, I guess, as much time as you want to find the six sets that are on the screen. So if that sounds cool to you, check out setgame.com and do their daily challenge. I think it's a lot of fun. I also played Get Bit, designed by Dave Chalker and published by Asmodee and Mayday Games. Uh, I played this one with Jody and Amy and my friend Luke, and in Get Bit, players are swimming away from a shark as fast as they can. Imagine like a scene from Jaws where dun 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 the shark is like coming up from behind you, he's going to eat your legs or whatever. And players just play a card numbered 1 through 7 from their hand, and then whoever played the lowest card moves to the back. I'm sorry, whoever played the lowest card moves to the front, then the next card moves to the front, moves to the front, moves to the front, etc. Uh, you're in a little line, right? So you just move into the front of the line, and then if anybody ties and nobody moves, and then like the players at the end of the line at the end gets bit by the shark, and they lose a leg or an arm or a head. Aha! And when there are two players left, of whatever number of players are playing, uh, whoever is ahead wins, and whoever is behind gets eaten. Uh, Get Bit is super fun. It's adorable. It comes with a little, little Lego shark and little Lego people who swim around. I've played Get Bit a bunch of times over the years, and it's always fun to play. I also played Tides of Madness with Eric. Tides of Madness continues to be a fantastic game. I now think that it is strictly better than Tides of Time, the game that it has now replaced for me in my collection. In Tides of Madness, you are drafting cards in an effort to score as many points as you can based on combining cards that have scoring criteria and also have personal criteria that means they're like some part of a set or have some symbol on them and they score points in different ways and you're just drafting back and forth it's a little two-player game takes about 15 minutes to play you score in three rounds highest score after three rounds wins what tides of madness does of course is it introduces a second way to win the game which is to not be the player who goes insane uh, some of the cards give you madness tokens and earning them can be a good thing because they might get you extra points but if you end up with enough of them you go insane and you lose so it has the secondary winning criteria kind of like what Seven Wonders Duel has that I hope comes out in more two-player games because it gives you a reason not to do the best thing for you in a given hand while you're drafting, and that's very, very interesting. And I think it makes a drafting decision significantly cooler. Also, it means if you're losing, if you know that you're losing on score, you might be able to push cards around in such a way that you force your opponent to go insane and catch up a little bit, which is also compelling. Eric and I also played Ten Down, a gin rummy-style card game designed by my buddy Odd Hackwelder, Published by Card Sports Entertainment, that's CSE Games, who also did mine and Daryl's game, Fantasy Fantasy Baseball. Uh, Eric and I played it. It took us about 20 minutes to play. It's a gin rummy style game where you're trying to collect a run of 1 through 10 with 10 cards in your hand. And you get additional points if those cards make color runs or suit runs, if you're thinking about rank and suit, inside your hand. And it's a race to get 10 points. So when you turn in 10 cards, uh, 1 through 10 gives you 1 point. And then for each set of 3 cards that are the same color in a row inside that 10 card run, you get an additional point. So if I had 1 through 5 all red cards, and then 6 through 10, whatever combination of colors otherwise, I would get 3 points for the red. I'd have a 1, 2, 3 set, a 2, 3, 4 set, and a 4, 5, or 3, 4, 5 set. And then I also get a point for having the 1 through 10 set, be 4 points. And the first player to 10 wins. It's an okay game. 
I don't think that it's necessarily better than Jin Remy. I know that like Tom Vassell hates Phase 10, and I really like Phase 10. And this kind of has that Phase 10 feel in that sometimes you're pushing your luck to see what you can do before the other person like wins the game or scores a bunch of points or shuffles the deck and takes away the options that you might have. But it's worth playing, and I'm glad that I played it. I don't know how often I would play it. I think it might be better if it was just cards numbered 1 through 7 instead of 1 through 10, and I've tried that, and it felt about the same, so what do I know? Uh, but that's 10 down, and if you like card games, check it out. Got a few more games here to talk about. First, I want to do Onitama, which is a game that I've played before from Arcane Wonders, designed by Shinpei Sato. I hope that I'm saying that correctly. Uh, it's a two-player game where each player takes a line of four pawns and a king uh, in a 5x5 five five grid, so a 25-square board in a perfect square, uh, and attempts to win the game by either capturing the other person's king or putting their king inside the other player's throne, which is the center square on their own back row. So imagine that if you advance your king five spaces forward, or I guess four spaces forward, you win the game. Uh, in Onitama, the way that you move, unlike chess or unlike games like the Duke, etc., is by playing one of the two cards you have in front of you. And when the game starts, you're each given two cards and one card's put in the middle. On your turn, you choose one of those two cards and move one of your pieces on the board in one of the ways depicted on the card, and then replace your card with the card in the middle between players so that cards will flow back and forth between players as the game progresses. The cards typically let you move in some way that is tied to an animal, to one of the methods of this, this kung fu style game that's happening here, like an elephant or a boar or a rabbit or a tiger, with a little quote that tells you like how this is expressed in the game. And it's thematic and very cool, and it is an abstract game, and of course you could learn this game with absolutely none of the theme whatsoever, but the theme is presented in a way that actually feels pretty neat. And it might sound like a bit of a juxtaposition given what I just said about the networks, but for whatever reason, Onitama really works well for me here. The figurines are very nice, the board is a rolled out playmat, everything about it has this like oriental feel, the script, the fonts, the way that it talks about the game, the art on the rollout board. It just looks and feels very cool. I played it with Aldi a bunch at Origins, and Aldi really enjoyed it, and I enjoyed playing it with him. And I had a chance to teach Eric here too, and Eric and I are always looking for cool two-player games we can play pretty quickly. And Onitama definitely fits the bill. I tend to compare it to the Duke, which is another excellent two-player game where you draw tiles and then they get flipped over and they do movement in different ways, because both games have variable movement based on where a piece is and how that piece particularly moves, and in Onitama it's based on what cards you have. Uh, the Duke has a lot of randomness, and Onitama of course has no randomness. You can see exactly what the board is going to be as you move your cards around. Uh, but because of that, it's very simple and it's a very elegant game that I really enjoy playing. If you haven't played Onitama, you should play Onitama. By Arcane Wonders. I think the box is $25 or $30. It's a beautiful box. It looks like a box for a bottle of whiskey. Like it's that same like like rectangular boxy shape and it opens up sideways and then everything is stored inside it. Very good game. Onitama, super fun. You should play it. Eric and I also played Via Nebula. This is my second play of Martin Wallace's game published by Space Cowboys. Eric and I played two players. Eric won in his first game, did a really good job. Uh, the game played about like the first game we played would, which is that uh, we experienced some real scarcity in terms of what goods were available, and in doing so, drove ourselves to complete certain kinds of buildings. The game ends, of course, when one player finishes five of their buildings, and we didn't do nearly as much exploration as I would have expected from a two-player game, because we're really competing closely to make sure that we had the available resources we need to build the buildings that would get us close to ending the game. Eric won because he, like, got a chokehold on some pigs, and then, like, my chokehold on wheat didn't really do me any good, and Eric got a card that let him like transmute one good into another good, which gave him what he needed to finish his fifth building and win the game. And if he hadn't gotten that, I would have been able to finish my fourth and fifth buildings and win the game that way. 
and that didn't happen. For context, the game ends when you get five buildings, and you are building buildings inside this Via Nebula Valley, which you're exploring and like removing mist and fog from to replace with these open patches of grass, wherein you can move goods around to these building sites and then build things. So it was fun. I'm glad that I played it. And I had, I think, more fun playing it two players than I did playing it four players, and I enjoyed it with four players. So I'm glad that I have it, and I think it's going to come out of my collection even more. I know Eric was really excited to play it. He and I are both fans of Martin Wallace, who famously builds trade games like Brass and Steam and Railways of the World. And it was cool to play one of Martin Wallace's other games, and I think he and I both enjoyed it. If nothing else, Eric and I will play this game together again, but I'm going to try to get it on the table a little bit more. Uh, The last thing Eric and I played together was Pandemic the Cure. This is, of course, the dice version of the cooperative game Pandemic. A couple things that it does differently. Each player has a special distribution of dice, so it really takes and spreads the differences between players more than just, like, I have a special ability. Now it's like, my dice do things that your dice don't do, and as a result, I will play a specific role in this game. Of course, it's just like Pandemic, where you're all trying to cure diseases that are spreading around the world as quickly as possible. There's a lot of dice randomness. Sometimes when you roll dice, they come with little infection symbols, and some of them have little cure symbols on them. That's what the infection symbol is. And uh, as you get them, they become resources that you spend on special effects, which is really fun. Uh, There's no card randomness besides the little special effects. It's all about what dice you roll and where they go. Uh, We did not win our game. We got crushed. Me, Eric, and Randy played it collected. Uh, But it was fun. It was fun. And I really like Pandemic the Cure. I think that I'll play it a lot, and I can't wait to play it with Amy. I actually bought my copy as a present for her, and we haven't played it yet, so I need to rectify that situation. Uh, But it's cool, and I think it's my favorite version of Pandemic besides Pandemic Legacy. And I can't wait to play it again. So I talked about it more, I think, on Episode 2. So if you want to hear more about the actual game, check out Episode 2 and listen to me talk about it. I don't want to do that to you twice. On Thursday night at Collected, me and Ace got a chance to play Mechs vs. Minions, which the guys from Riot sent over a review copy. Thank you so much to them. And it's second time that I've played, second time that I've played the tutorial mission and mission number one. If you guys want to hear about what those games are like, go to episode five. I talked about them a bunch. Uh, we got to episode two, which was super, super cool. Light spoilers here. Uh, in episode two, you are defending your school from these minions that are just like walking forward, walking forward. We're spawning 18, no, 24 new minions every turn. And if a single one of them makes it into the school, the school blows up and you lose. Well, spoilers, we lost because that's very difficult to do. Uh, it was me, Ace, and Scott Waring, and then um, Amy's best friend's daughter, Ariel, who we were babysitting for the weekend, and we had a great time playing this game. It was super fun. And I think it's important noting, Ariel is 12 years old, and plays like the Pokemon card game and some other games and stuff, but I don't think she's necessarily playing a ton of hobby board games in her time, and she had a great time playing this game, understood the rules, and knew how to play. And that's a good sign, because I thought that Mechs vs. Minions would be good for kids and would be enjoyable, and it turns out that it was, and I'm very excited about that. I continue to be impressed with the game. I do have to say, though, after having played it for like four straight hours on Thursday, I haven't really had the itch to play it again since then. I'm guessing that I'll play it again this Thursday with other people who want to play. But unlike Pandemic Legacy or even Seafall, where like, I wanted to get to that next game, I wanted to do it again, I don't necessarily feel that for Max vs. Minions. And I don't know if that's because we lost the last game we played. So there's a little bit of that like, oh man, we lost. That sucks. I wanted to win. Or if it's just because, like, we played it on a Thursday, we played so much of it, and by that, that last game, game two took us, like, two hours to play because there were so many interruptions and people were standing around watching the table. And when you're spawning 24 new minions every turn, they've got to move different ways and stuff, and it's a little spoilery. There's some stuff that happens within the campaign. Resolution was a little tough. There was a lot of resolving, a lot of moving and stuff, and a lot of questions. Plus, like, we were playing with a kid who was getting a little bit bored and stuff. She was getting bored after, like, four hours of it, so the game is good, but she was, like, ready to go to bed. 
I don't know if that means that like it wasn't as engaging as it could have been, or if it was just the environment, but I want to play it again, and I want to do it with Ace, who I don't get to play games with as much, nearly as much now, because he's got a different work schedule and stuff. And I really want to keep that same campaign and go through it, and I'm not sure that we'll get a chance to. So I might hold off for him. I might just keep playing it with other people, since you don't actually write on anything or change anything, so you can always just reset it and play wherever you are in the campaign with whomever. The game went on sale last week, and I encourage everyone to check it out. Very, very good. I'm so happy that I had a copy, and if I hadn't gotten a review copy, I would have purchased one. Great value. Super good game. The last game to talk about this week is Star Realms, specifically Star Realms on the iOS, the app version of the game. I was at a Rangers game a couple weeks ago, the last playoff game that they played at home. They lost and then lost the series, so they're out of the playoffs now, which is heartbreaking. Uh, during that game, I dropped my phone and cracked my screen after like two years of my phone being fine, and it shattered, and I went and I got a new iPhone 7 with Amy because she's an adult and took care of me and made sure that that happened. Now I have this big, beautiful phone that has like way more memory and way more battery life and all this stuff than the stupid iPhone 4S that I had for a long time. And I was like, wow, now I can actually like run gaming apps and stuff. What am I going to play? Well, I downloaded Star Realms because I know a lot of people that play it. And I've been playing a bunch of games through their online matchmaking and against some of my friends, like Nick Christie and against Doug Lewandowski and a bunch of other friends. Star Realms is really fun. It's a very good game, and I'm glad that I'm playing it. I've been having some heated conversations with Nick about high-level play. Nick is a very, very good player. And he's like, hey, let me give you tips and stuff. And it's like, no, nah, I don't want your tips. I want to discover how to play this game for myself. I've played other games at a high level before. And to me, the discovery of figuring out what card combos work well, like what pacing is like. Star Realms, by the way, is a two-player card game. It can be more than two players, but usually it's two players, uh, where you're trying to kill the other person with all their life, kind of like magic, uh, by you know paying for cards, putting them in your deck, shuffling up, drawing them, and do things. What Star Realms does, I think, differently than any other game, is the cards combine to have really powerful effects. And also, Star Realms has this inflection point where it's important that you go from acquiring cards, which is something you have to do a lot of at the beginning of the game, to no longer acquiring cards or acquiring fewer cards, and instead focusing on getting through your deck as quickly as possible to do these powerful things you've built into your deck to get your opponent's life total down to zero, which is how you win the game. And Star Realms is very cool because at inflection point, knowing when that's happening in your deck and when it's time to up the pace and try to actually race your opponent and get them down to zero is incredibly important. There's a lot of nuance there. It's an important thing to think about as you play. And I think that it's interesting to learn more about the game and when to stop buying, what to buy, what cards are value better than others. And that kind of discovery is what excites me and what makes me want to play this a bunch. Also, it's very easy to play on the phone, which is nice. So just like I used to play Ascension all the time, I think I'll now play Star Realms all the time. And that like once or twice per day, I'll just sit down and like play all my turns and then be done with it for another six or seven hours. And I can see the game being really fun for the experience. I played Ascension forever like that on the iPad. I played like a thousand games of Ascension on the iPad like that. And I got pretty good at it. You know, you played a bunch, whatever. Uh, but it was totally a game that I could look at twice a day and that was it. I want to have that same experience with Star Realms, and I'm looking forward to it. So Star Realms on the iOS app, check it out. If you want to challenge me, I'm J-A-Y-A-H-R-E. I'd be happy to play against you. All right, everybody, that's episode six of JR Place. Thank you so much for listening. You guys enjoy your gaming this week, and if you want to tell me what you're doing or ask me any questions or anything like that, I'm on Twitter at J-A-Y-A-H-R-E, and BoardGameGeek is the same. Also, I want to say a special thanks to Phoebe Wild, uh, my friend from Australia, who was last week's Board Game Geek Geek of the Week and nominated me for the same thing this week. So it's been really fun getting to answer questions and talk about games a little bit on BoardGameGeek.com. So thanks, everybody, for listening. Have a great week. See you guys soon.